Well, good morning, church. Good morning, guests. If I haven't been as one of the pastors here at New Branch, and we're glad that you're with us. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the little book of Jude. We are doing a, a short study, just a few weeks, going through this short but power-packed letter from Jude, the brother of James, who's also the brother of Jesus. And we're in our third week. We haven't made much progress. We've covered four verses, but we're going to hit overdrive this morning, and we're going to cover three times that many. So be ready. We're covering verses 5 through 16 this morning. In verses 1 through 2, we learned about our identity in Christ, that if we have repented of our sins and we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our only hope to be rescued from the judgment we deserve because of our sins, then we have an identity. And, and Jude says that we are called, loved, and kept. We're called into the faith. We're loved with a regenerating and rescuing and unconditional love by God. And we are kept in the faith by and for Jesus. And this biblical identity of who we are in Christ helps us when we're called upon to contend for the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. Last week in verses 3 and 4, we talked about just that. What it means to contend for the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. To, to contend, to strive, to labor, to fight, to maintain the purity of the faith and our fidelity to that faith in ourselves, in our homes, and in our churches, and in the broader community around us. And this morning is where we get to the bulk of the letter. And the bulk of the letter this morning in verses 5 through 16 is where Jude goes on the offensive to point out the sin of the interlopers. The, the, those who had crept into the church to try to to pervert the grace of God and to dilute the faith with their teaching and their actions. And so he points out their sin in this passage, and more importantly, he points out the judgment that they deserve as a result of their sin. And so this morning, we're learning about God's judgment of sin. So let's read Jude, verses 5 through 16. This is... God's word to us. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever it was also about these that enoch the seventh from adam prophesied saying behold the lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so precious to us. We believe and affirm it to be your very breath to us. And such as it is, Father, we ask that you would speak to us from it alone. Pray that any thoughts or things that I might say that is not in accord with your word would fall on deaf ears. But Father, that which is in accord with your word would be driven deep into our souls that you might use these truths, Father, to edify and build up the church, to encourage the saints, and Father, to convict sinners of their need for a Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jude begins this discussion about God's judgment of sin, because that's what we're talking about this morning. But he begins this discussion about God's judgment of sin by saying in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. He needs to remind his hearers, and he needs to remind us, because we forget. We need reminders because we forget. When I make appointments, I have to set reminders for myself so that I don't forget. And even then, sometimes I forget. When Susan gives me something to do around the house, I have to send myself a reminder so that I don't forget. And usually it works. When I get those reminders, I get those notifications, it, it, it jogs my memory and I, I remember what I'm supposed to do. Well, these verses are Jude's reminder. They're his notification to his hearers, his, his readers, and to us today. That sin is serious. This is a reminder to us this morning that sin is no small thing. That it's a big deal. That sin carries with it dire consequences for the sinner. And it's a reminder to us that God still judges sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 8 that for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Sin leads to corruption, destruction, and death. And it always leads to that. And so the main idea of this passage is that God still judges sin, but Jesus still gives grace to repentant sinners. And so this is a warning this morning about the seriousness of sin. This passage is about judgment, and so we're going to talk about some hard stuff from it. But if you'll stick with me to the end, we'll also see that there is beautiful and glorious grace for those who repent and believe on Christ. But in order for us to have a right appreciation for grace for our sin, we need to wade into the ugly waters of judgment for our sin. There are three sections in this passage that will serve as kind of a guide for our time together. In verses 5 through 10, he talks about God, how God judges sinners. In verses 11 through 13, he talks about how God judges false teachers. And then in verses 14 through 16, how God judges the ungodly. And, and what he will do in each of these sections, he, he's got a pattern in each of these sections. And his pattern is this. First, he's going to show us examples of judgment from the Old Testament. And then he's going to apply those examples to the interlopers of his day. I'm going to refer to them as interlopers today. They, they're those who were creeping in that he talked about last week, who crept in unnoticed into the church 
and were perverting the grace of God and were doing harm to the faith. They were interlopers. And so he's going to point to examples of judgment in the Old Testament, and then he's going to apply those examples to these interlopers of Jude's day. And this pattern is going to be the fulfillment, really, of what we saw last week in verse 4. In verse 4, Jude said that, that these interlopers were long ago marked out for, quote, this condemnation. Well, now we're going to hear more about this condemnation as Jude describes judgments from God in the Old Testament and then applies them to the interlopers of his day. So the first section is about God's judgment of sinners in verses 5 through 10. Again, his pattern Give examples from the Old Testament and then apply them to the interlopers. And the examples that he gives here in this section of God judging sinners are three stories, three familiar stories, if you're familiar to Bible study, um, of God's judgment in the Old Testament, God's judgment for sin. The first judgment is about the unbelieving Israelites. Verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so this is a reference to the miraculous deliverance of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. And then later, we know that that, that as they're poised uh, on the banks of the Jordan, ready to cross over into the promised land, they first sent ten spies into that land. And eight of, those, eight of those spies came back and said, oh, no, no, we shouldn't go because there's giants in that land. It's going to be too hard, and we're not going to be able to feed them, and we should not go into the promised land. But Joshua and Caleb brought back a different report. And their report was, yes, there are giants in the land, but it's also a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the land that God has promised to us, and he is able to deliver us from the giants, and he will fulfill his promise, and he will give us that land. Of course, we know that the Israelites as a whole, they listened to the majority report, and they believed that those giants were too strong for God, that God couldn't defeat them, that they would be defeated instead, and they refused to enter into the promised land. And God tells them that as a result of their unbelief, They were going to spend the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And that that entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, that they would die off in the wilderness and they would never enter the promised land. They'd be destroyed in the wilderness. But the point here is that though they had experienced God's incredible deliverance and salvation out of slavery in Egypt, Through the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, they had experienced all of that, yet they still didn't trust God. And they still didn't believe God. And they ended up being destroyed in the desert as a direct result of their unbelief. And so this is a story about judgment because of unbelief. The second judgment here is a judgment about the rebellious angels Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The vast majority of biblical scholars tell us that this is a story that comes directly out of Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, we're told this very strange story about how the sons of God came into the daughters of men and that they bore children to them, these Nephilim who were giants in the land. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that fallen angels are referred to as the sons of God. And so these angels here in Genesis 6, these sons of God are the fallen angels who took on the appearance of man They come down to earth, they hook up with women, and they have offspring, these these Nephilim, these giants, these human giants, there in Genesis 6. And, And what Jude says is that these fallen angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. In other words, they rebelled against God. 
They rejected God's plan for them. They weren't content with the position of authority that God had them in. They wanted more. And so they left their proper dwelling, which was heaven, and they came to earth to hook up with women. And so as a consequence, Jude says, he has kept these rebellious angels in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So this was a story of judgment because of rebellion against God and rejection of his ways. And then the third judgment story is about Sodom and Gomorrah there in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities who likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. The, the phrases there, just as and who likewise, they're, they're drawing a comparison for us between the, the angels um, in Genesis 6 who um, came to commit sexual immorality with human women and, and the, a comparison between them and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, who we read about in Genesis 19, who indulged in sexual immorality and pursued, quote, unnatural desire with other angelic men who were there to save Lot and his family. The King James Version and the New American Standard translates that phrase, unnatural desire, as strange flesh, which is actually, I think, a better translation of the words. But the point is that for the angels to commit sexual immorality with women, that was an unnatural desire for strange flesh. And in the same way, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, seeking to commit sexual immorality with these angel men in Lot's house, was also an unnatural desire for strange flesh. And Jude concludes that both of these serve as examples by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, that that's what they deserve. And so this was a story of judgment because of immorality and specifically because of sexual immorality. And so Jude gives these three stories of judgment because of sin in the Old Testament. Judgment for the sin of unbelief, the sin of rebellion against God and rejection of his ways, and, and the sin of immorality. And then he applies those examples to the interlopers in the church of his day in verses 8 through 10. In essence, what he says here is that the interlopers deserve the same judgment as the unbelieving Israelites and the rebellious angels and the immoral men of Sodom and Gomorrah. And their sins, while they're not necessarily exactly the same sins. They do follow a very common and similar theme. And so in verse 8, Jude reveals to us three of the sins of these interlopers. He says, yet in like manner, these people, referring to the interlopers, these people also, relying on their dreams, do what? Defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. So those are the three sins of the interlopers. First, like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, this was some sort of sin against the flesh, a defilement of the flesh. And we don't know exactly what that included for the interlopers. Jude doesn't tell us. But we can imagine that it probably included some sort of sexual immorality. Secondly, he says that they reject authority. This is like the angels who rejected God's authority and rejected their allotted position. And again, we don't know exactly what these interlopers did to deserve that, uh, that label. But apparently, they weren't content with the position that God had put them in. They wanted more. And so we were told in verse 4 last week, they, they crept into the church unnoticed. Deceptively crept in. And so they likewise rebelled against God and rejected the position that God had them in, and they decided to do their own thing by creeping into the church in order to pervert the faith of the saints. And then thirdly, they were blasphemous. We're told 
that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, the glorious ones refers to angels, but the question for us is, are these the good kind of angels or are these the bad kind of angels? Well, because of what comes next in verses 9 through 10, I take this to mean the bad angels, that these are fallen angels, but they're still angels. They, they, they still have a measure of angelic uh, majesty and glory, if you will, as angelic creatures, even though they are fallen, even though they had rebelled against God. And we get this from the story there in verses 9 and 10. Now, the story in verses 9 and 10 about the archangel Michael disputing with Satan over Moses' body is strange and probably unfamiliar to you, and that's because it's not in the Bible. It's from um, other non-canonical uh, books, uh, Jewish literature, um, specifically the apocryphal Assumption of Moses and the book of Enoch. Now, some people have just lost their marbles because Jude quotes here from a non-canonical book, but just because he quotes from a non-canonical book doesn't mean that he believes this is part of Scripture. In reality, this is not a whole lot different than Paul quoting from Greek philosophers in the book of Acts, or me quoting from John Piper. Just because he quotes from books that aren't a part of the canon of Scripture doesn't mean that he thinks that they should be a part of the canon of Scripture. It simply means that he takes these stories to be true and that they are a helpful illustration of what was happening with these interlopers who were creeping into the church of his day. And so apparently the archangel Michael disputes with Satan over the body of Moses. We don't know exactly why he disputes, but we do know this. Satan was wrong and the archangel Michael was right. Imagine that. But Jude tells us that Michael didn't presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment on Satan. But rather he left it to God saying, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, even though Satan himself certainly deserved blasphemous judgment from Michael, Michael respected God's authority too much. And he believed that Satan was another angel, which he was. And so he was one of the quote-unquote glorious ones against whom one should not blaspheme. And yet, here are these interlopers of Jude's day blaspheming everything around them that they don't understand. And, and so I take this blasphemy here of the interlopers in verse 8 to also be the sin of trying to take the place of God, of really rebelling against God and, and, and rejecting God's authority and, and, and unbelief because they, they refuse to believe that God's angels were the glorious ones who should not be blasphemed against. Instead, they took matters into their own hands and decided to do things their own way. And we should note here that verse 8 tells us that they did all of this relying on their dreams. They weren't relying on God's word. They were relying on visions and dreams. And church, any time, any time we elevate man's visions and dreams above the revealed truth in God's word, we're going to get ourselves in trouble as they did. But the whole point of this section of verses 5 through 10 is that Jude is reminding his readers that sin is serious and that God still judges sin. As he did with the sinners in these Old Testament st stories, so he will do with the interlopers of Jude's day and so he will do with sinners today. Judgment is visually and horrifyingly described by Jude in this section as destruction in verse 5, as being kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day in verse 6, and the punishment of eternal fire in verse 7. And Jude says, if that's what the Old Testament sinners deserved, how can these interlopers hope to escape a similar fate? And how can sinners today hope to escape a similar fate? 
So there are three takeaways from Jude's discussion here of God's judgment of sinners. First, I think we should see this as a warning both to Jude's readers and to us today to not follow these interlopers, to not listen to them, to not follow their example, to not live like them, that we should see clearly the judgment they deserved and then steer clear of their way. But second, this also serves as further impetus for us to contend for the faith. As we learned last week, the exhortation from Jude in verse 3 to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints is the primary purpose of him writing this letter. And so this discussion about the judgment that these interlopers deserved because of their sin should provide additional impetus and, and reason for Jude's readers and to us to contend for the faith. Because the, the unbelief of the interlopers, their rebellion against God, their rejection of His ways, their immorality and their blasphemy could and will have a tremendously negative impact on the faith of the church if the church is not careful to contend for the faith. And then thirdly, a third takeaway from this section is that this discussion of God's judgment of sin should give us a greater appreciation for grace. A greater appreciation for grace. See, the Bible says that we're all sinners. And because of that, we all deserve the judgment that's described here. We all deserve destruction. We all deserved, every one of us in this room deserved the punishment of eternal fire because of our sin and rebellion against God. But God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, went to the cross to pay the debt that we deserve to pay. He died in the place of sinners. He paid that death. He endured the judgment and the punishment that we deserve. And we'll see a reminder of that grace before we close this morning. But, but for now, all we see is the ugliness of sin and the bitterness of deserved judgment. But I want to suggest to you, church, that it is good for us to be reminded that we have within each of us the capacity to commit these very same sins. And so deserve the very same judgment. English Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And the more we are aware of the depravity of our own hearts and the capacity of our flesh to, to rebel against God and to reject His ways, then the greater will be our appreciation for the grace that He has given to those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone for rescue. As the hymn, Come Thou Fount, laments, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Daily we are constrained to be a debtor to the grace of God. And so he says, so let thy goodness, Lord, let thy goodness be a fetter, a, a a shackle, a handcuff. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Church, we are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God that we all love. And the more we recognize this capacity of ours to wander from God and reject His ways, and sin against Him, the more we will appreciate the beautiful and glorious grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. So that is God's judgment of sinners. The second section here is God's judgment of false teachers. Now, again, Jude's pattern is the same. He's going to show us examples of judgment from the Old Testament, and then he's going to apply those examples to the interlopers of his day. And the example of judgment against false teachers 
comes to us in the form of three woes or three curses in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So verse 11 kind of serves as a transition verse for us this morning. The first woe there in verse 11 really has more to do with God's judgment of sinners. But then with the second and third woe, uh, Jude begins to transition to talk about God's judgment of false teachers. The first woe, he says, they walked in the way of Cain. We remember the way of Cain from early on in the Genesis account. Genesis chapter 4, very early on in your Bible. He and his brother Abel were the first sons of Adam and Eve. And each of them prepared an offering for the Lord. And the Lord, in his sovereign wisdom, he had regard for Abel's offering, but he did not have regard for Cain's offering. And what happened to Cain? He burned up with jealousy, bitterness, and anger. And ended up murdering his brother as a result of that. And so these interlopers were likewise walking in the way of Cain, jealousy and bitterness and anger. The second woe, he says, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam's error, the story of Balaam is uh, referring to a story that we find in the book of Numbers, uh, chapters 22 through 31. You can read that on your own time. But in that story, a a prophet of God, a prophet of the Israelites named Balaam, wrongly uses his position as one of God's prophets to entice the Israelites to sin by intermarrying with the Midianite women and and, um, taking part in their idolatrous pagan practices. And Balaam did this out of greed so that the evil king of Moab, Balak, would give him a bribe in exchange. And so likewise, these interlopers were, they were abusing their role as teachers and influencers and leaders within the church in order to gain something from them. They were teaching things that were false out of a motive of greed for the sake of gain, he says. And then the third woe, He says that they perished in Korah's rebellion. This is also a story from earlier in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 16, where Korah, Korah was an Israelite, but he was an Israelite who had an ego the size of Texas and and an insatiable lust for power. And he led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, who were God's chosen leaders for Israel. But his efforts to lead the Israelites in a rebellion against Moses and Aaron failed miserably, and he and 250 of his fellow rebels were destroyed. And so Judah's saying these interlopers likewise, through their false teaching, were, were attempting to lead a rebellion against God's chosen leaders in the church and against God's truth. And so they perished and I think it's interesting that he, that he speaks of these interlopers who are currently trying to pervert the faith in the churches. He says they perished. Their destruction, their condemnation is a done thing. They perished in Korah's rebellion. So these woes from the Old Testament, those are the examples of the woe on the interlopers of Jude's day. And then in the next couple of verses, verses 12 and 13, He then applies that example to them by listing out six very graphic metaphors of the false teachers. These metaphors are very graphic, and and, and they paint a very visual picture here of what Jude thought of these interlopers, but not just of what he thought of them, but what their effect was on the people who were in the churches to whom Jude was writing. Jude is telling us that instead of these guys helping and serving their hearers, instead, they did great harm to them. First, he calls them hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. 
hidden reefs leave you shipwrecked. They crept in unnoticed, as we read about in verse 4 last week. They crept in unnoticed. And so you may not have noticed their potential for harm and destruction to the faith, but it was there. And they ended up leaving the people shipwrecked in their faith. Secondly, he says they're shepherds feeding themselves. Shepherds who only feed themselves leave you uncared for. Shepherds who are only out for their own gain aren't concerned for the needs of the flock, aren't concerned for feeding the flock and caring for the flock. And so the flock becomes more vulnerable to attack and more malnourished in their spirituality. Thirdly, he calls them waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Waterless clouds leave you dry. They promise rain. They promise that they've got rain in them. Life-giving rain, life-giving water, but, but they don't deliver. Nothing comes out of them. They're waterless clouds. And so they end up leaving the people spiritually dry. Fourth, he calls them fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Fruitless trees leave you hungry. Autumn was harvest time, and if the fruits didn't produce any fruit, if the trees didn't produce any fruit, well, they were cut down and uprooted. And so they were twice dead. Once they were dead because they didn't produce any fruit, but second, because of their fruitful, fruitlessness. They were cut down and uprooted. But since they didn't produce any fruit, they, they left the people hungry. Fifth, he calls them wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wild waves leave you shaken. The effect of the interlopers on the flock was to agitate them. They were agitated because of what the interlopers were doing. Maybe because they were telling them to do something or, or to believe something that was in contradiction to God's word. But, but, but the effect of their agitation left them shaken in their faith. And then sixth, he calls them wandering stars and wandering stars leave you aimless. Because although you are supposed to be able to navigate by looking at the stars, if the stars are wandering, then you can't get your bearing and you'll be aimless. And you'll be trying to navigate without any assistance. And these interlopers were leaving the people in the church aimless. You know, I was thinking as I was studying this, I was thinking, what is the opposite of this? Because I don't want to be this kind of shepherd. I want to be the opposite kind of shepherd. I want our elders to be the opposite kind of shepherds. So I'd say that the opposite of this would be shepherds who are safe, shepherds who are caring, who lead us to living water and feed us and nourish us from God's word, who promote peace and provide guidance and counsel that is good and right because it's rooted in the Scriptures. But that's not the effect that these interlopers, these false teachers were having on the people of Jude's day. Instead, they left the people unsafe, uncared for, unfed, and without direction. And so as a result of that, he concludes at the end of verse 13 that they are those for whom the gloom of utter darkness is reserved forever. In other words, they deserve the judgment that's coming for them. So what's our takeaway from Jude's discussion now of God's judgment on the false teachers? Well, it's very similar to as before. Jude is warning his readers and he's warning us to not follow these kinds of teachers. Church, don't listen to teachers who leave you unsafe, 
who leave you unfed, who leave you uncared for, and who leave you directionless. Rather, listen to teachers who feed you from God's word, care for you unselfishly, and who will provide direction and counsel from the word of God. Second takeaway is that this is also further impetus to contend for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. If the interlopers made their way into the church, they would leave the church uncared for, unsafe, unfed, spiritually dry, spiritually shaken, and spiritually aimless such that they would make a shipwreck of their faith. And what kind of fight would be left in them to contend for the faith? So church, let us contend for the faith now and so prevent these interlopers from ever having that effect on our flock and our family and ourselves. And then a third takeaway is that, is that this is a reminder to us that we have a good shepherd. We have the best shepherd, Jesus. And he is vastly different than the shepherds that these interlopers were. And he is vastly superior to any earthly shepherd. And so, so Jude here in this letter talks about God's judgment for sinners, God's judgment for false teachers, and then thirdly, God's judgment of the ungodly in verses 14 through 16. As with the other two sections... The pattern is the same here. First, we're given an example of judgment, and then that example is applied to the interlopers. And the example in this section is a quote, again, from the book of Enoch. And this one's a quote. And again, the, the book of Enoch is not a part of the canon of Scripture, nor should it be. And so it's not considered inspired by the Holy Spirit. But, but Jude tells us that, that Enoch prophesied about these interlopers, or at least he, he prophesied about people who, who, like them, were ungodly. He says in verse 14, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. That's a clear reference to the return of Christ the second coming of Christ, that when Christ comes, he will come with his angels and he will come to execute judgment. Verse 15, he comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so what made these folks ungodly that he's talking about? First of all, their deeds, what they did, they were ungodly deeds. Second of all, the way they did them, they did them in an ungodly way, which I think speaks to motive. And thirdly, their speech, that they had ungodly, what they said was ungodly. So I think we can uh, use all my powers of interpretation here to say that I think this means that God judges the ungodly. Four times in one sentence, he uses the same word, God judges the ungodly. And then Jude will apply that example of ungodliness to the interlopers of his day in verse 16. And he says, this is how the interlopers who are creeping into the church manifest their ungodliness. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And so this third section also has three takeaways. And they're all so similar. First, Jude is warning his readers and us to not follow the example of this kind of person. Secondly, it is again an impetus to contend for the faith. Because as we learned last week, these kinds of ungodly persons are those who he said in verse 4, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must contend for the faith so that that doesn't happen. And then thirdly, again, it is to appreciate God's grace. Because, friend, apart from Christ, we are all ungodly. 
And so we all deserve to be those for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And yet the believer, for the believer in Christ, who's trusted in Jesus, and turned from their sin and their self-rule to turn in, to Christ and his rule over them, to trust in his finished work on the cross as their only hope to be rescued, to him or her, God has been gracious. God has been gracious. And because of the sovereign grace of God, we can know that the utter darkness of God's judgment is categorically not reserved for us. Praise God for that. And so as believers, we, we read all this in this passage about God's judgment in verses 5 through 16. But we must read it in context. And the context tells us that this judgment is not for us. The middle section here of Jude's letter that we've spent our time on this morning is, has, has end pieces on either end. Gospel truths on either end. In reality, what we have here is a big old gospel sandwich. And I know you're hungry, you're about ready to go eat, but, but, but chew on this for a moment. Listen to this gospel sandwich. All of this talk about God's judgment and the seriousness of sin is sandwiched between these two gospel truths. In verse 1, what did we learn? That we who professed our faith in Christ as our only hope, we have been called into that faith by a mighty God. We have been loved by a regenerating and rescuing and unconditional love by our God. And we will be kept in that faith, kept in that faith for and by Jesus. That's good news for those who are fighting against sin in our own hearts and lives. And then that is sandwiched on the other side by verse 24 that says this, that Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And so church, friend, brother and sister, we're reminded here of the seriousness of sin. And we're exhorted here to guard ourselves from walking in the way of these interlopers and to, and to fight hard against indwelling sin. And we should. We should. But brother and sister, we do that with the full knowledge that it is Christ in us who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Oh, he's called us to fight, church, and we must. He's called us to contend, church, and we must. But it is Jesus, it is Christ who is in us who will keep us and will present us one day blameless before our holy and mighty God. And so in addition to heeding the warning of sin here, and being reminded to, to contend for the faith in all seriousness. As believers, we should also walk away from this passage praising our God for Jesus Christ. Thanking Him for His perfect plan of redemption to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect sacrifice for us. We should walk away from this with, with a greater commitment to, 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 to love Jesus and to follow Jesus and to, and to obey Jesus because of what he has done for us in Christ. We should walk away from this passage praising God for sovereign grace in Christ. But then, for those among us who have not come to faith in Jesus yet, Friend, the warning of judgment here is still horrifyingly real for you. Jude describes it as destruction, gloomy darkness, the punishment of eternal fire, 
and the gloom of utter darkness that is forever. Friend, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then this is what you deserve because of your sin. This is what you deserve because of your unbelief, your rebellion against God, your rejection of his ways in favor of your own, because of your immorality and ungodliness. This is what you deserve because of your sin. But friend, the good news this morning is that Jesus saves sinners. God, in his sovereign and divine wisdom, saw fit to send his one and only son to earth to live as one of us and he did and he did it perfectly he perfectly fulfilled the law he achieved a righteousness that none of us could in a million lifetimes a righteousness that we must have if we are to be reconciled with our God he did it and then he went to the cross enduring the pain that we deserve taking on the punishment for sin that we deserve because of our sin. He took on the weight and the guilt of our sin to pay that price for us so that those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone, they might be saved, forgiven, reconciled back to God. And so, friend, if that's you, you feel the weight of guilt. You feel the weight of the conviction of your sin and the rightness and the fairness of God's judgment because of it. I beg of you, be reconciled to God by throwing yourself at the foot of the cross, trusting in Christ alone for rescue, to save you, to forgive you, and to reconcile you back to the God who loves you this much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much this morning for a passage of Scripture that sometimes is hard to swallow when we consider your judgment against sin. But Father, the more that we know your character, your goodness, your holiness, and the more we see the vileness and depravity of what sin is as a rebellion against you, we know that a just father must judge sin, must punish sin. And so, Father, as those who've come to faith in Jesus, we give you all the credit for that, and we thank you that your son Jesus endured all of that in our place. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But God, we thank you for it. And we pray and we ask that you would help us through Christ who is in us to live a life that's worthy of that kind of sacrifice. And we pray for those in this room who've never trusted in Christ. Lord, we pray and we ask that they would feel the full weight of their sin and their separation from you. And in that moment of desperation and hopelessness, that you would show them Jesus who came to take that penalty that they deserve. Oh God, would you, would you grant them repentance of their sins? Would you grant them faith to trust in Jesus as their only hope? Would you walk a sinner into sainthood by the grace of your name and for the glory of your name? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.